You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. Department of Energy says the power grid is preparing for Russian attacks. A teenager finds a flaw in hardware wallets. Travel service Orbit suffers a data breach. Lori Love won't be extradited to the U.S. We've got notes from today's Billington International Cybersecurity Summit. And Facebook's truly awful week continues. The Silicon Age is looking right now a lot like the end stages of the Gilded Age. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 21st, 2018. Congress has told U.S. Energy Secretary Perry may expect prompt action to ensure the power grid security. Secretary Perry expressed confidence that the grid is capable of resisting Russian cyber attacks and that the North American power distribution system has indeed adapted to the threat. It's a difficult challenge. We hope the Secretary's measured confidence turns out to be justified. Before we turn to Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, it's almost refreshing to be able to report some conventional hacks and vulnerabilities. A teenaged researcher has found a vulnerability in the popular cryptocurrency hardware wallet Ledger. British teenager Salim Rashid is the one who counted coup and disclosed it, so bravo to him, especially for his restraint and responsibility. He forwarded his proof of concept to Ledger some four months ago. Online travel service Orbit has been hacked, with the crooks making off with some 800,000 customer records. And British hacker Lori Love, famous for allegedly getting illegal access to a number of U.S. government sites in his search for evidence that Washington is covering up its dealings with extraterrestrials, will not ever face extradition to the United States. British courts found that he'd be likely to commit suicide under barbarous Yankee justice, so he's safe at home. Mr. Love has done some unseemly crowing about how he exposed massive human rights violations in the U.S. His case is instructive in at least two ways. First, a claim of psychological frailty can work to your advantage. Second, cranks pursuing fringe projects can work a great deal of damage. With each passing day, the GDPR compliance deadline grows closer, and there's growing consensus that many organizations are not going to be completely ready in time. J.R. Cunningham is Vice President of Advisory Services Product Management at Optiv, and he says, don't panic. If you look at the history of uh, sweeping uh, legislation around cybersecurity or privacy or uh, data, uh, what we've seen in the past is anytime we panic and race towards compliance, um, we don't get the desired outcome. Uh, Examples would be FISMA back in 2002, HIPAA in 1996. Uh, the PCI industry standard. If, if we take the PCI example, for instance, uh, here we have an industry standard around credit card security. And uh, of course, we saw in 2012, 13, 14, 
that retail breaches were, uh, you know, increasing in severity, frequency, cost. Uh, 2015 was the year of the healthcare breach. That was, you know, decades after uh, the passage of HIPAA. So what we see is that when organizations panic and race towards compliance with uh, the legislation of the day, and they don't pay attention to the rest of the goings-on in their information security program, that's the result. I think there's a lot of fear that uh, European regulators are going to make examples of, of organizations. Uh, do you think that's likely to happen? I, I think the history of uh, European regulations is precisely that. If you look at uh, antitrust cases uh, in the late 90s and early 1000s, it, it is kind of the, the European way to you know, find egregious examples of noncompliance and, and make an example and, and you know, levy fines. However, that's not to say that our perspective is that you know, the, the European regulators are going to be running around uh, with their ticket books uh, looking to, to write citations, um, especially early on. European enforcement of uh, laws such as this tend to be more focused on the spirit of compliance rather than you know, the exact letter of compliance. And so it would not be uh, unforeseen for regulators to go after some really big fish, especially if they're American companies. Uh, as I mentioned, we've seen this in the past. But we really don't get the sense that, um, you know, this is going to turn into a, a feeding frenzy. So what are your recommendations for companies as uh, we head towards that May deadline? There are a whole lot of things that an organization should be doing uh, around data protection and, and privacy that are uh, part of an, an overall healthy privacy and information security program. Um, being able to answer questions, what data do I have that's GDPR relevant? Um, where is the data in my organization? What measures do I have in place to, to protect that information, uh, not only on-premises, but as well third parties, outside providers? And then perhaps most importantly, can I respond effectively if something bad happens, if I do have, have an incident? These are steps that make a lot of sense, uh, even without uh, something like GDPR. You know, the other thing that is important is considering the perspective of the data subject. Here in the United States, we tend to have the view that when we provide data to a company, that data is just gone, and uh, you know the the company has it and can do whatever they want with it. Um, the GDPR puts upon us a requirement to be more transparent with the consumer on why we're collecting data, what we intend to do with it, uh, how long we're going to keep it, and so having these practices inside the organization you know, are part of an effective information security and information risk program uh, that will also get us to where we need to be from a GDPR compliance point of view. Now, one of the things uh, you mentioned in, in the notes that you sent over is this notion of uh, being able to demonstrate an intent to comply. Can you d explain that to us? Article 5 of the GDPR dives into the principles of the law. So all of the other 99 articles in the law really uh, boil down to these principles. And these principles are being lawful and fair and transparent about our use of information, minimizing the information, um, ensuring that uh, you know, anything that we do with this information is consistent with our, our stated business purpose and we're not um, doing other things with the information and then, of course, protecting the data. So being compliant with that spirit of the GDPR uh, is kind of that critical first step. What we're hearing from the, the market is that uh, most organizations are not going to be fully compliant by May 25th. So having a plan and having that plan tie back to those principles found in Article 5 are really essential in order to be able to demonstrate you know, a, a spirit of compliance. 
I guess I'm trying to to um, to unpack the balance here between uh, right. you know taking proper precautions, but also not getting carried away. There's an enormous amount of noise around GDPR, and if you look at what uh, specifically a lot of security product companies are saying, they're 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 tying their products with a uh, perceived need within GDPR, and GDPR really uh, does not go into the depth of specifying types of technology. Uh, GDPR talks about, uh, you know, considering the state of the art and taking a a uh, risk-balanced approach. Articles 25 and 32 specifically refer to taking a risk-based approach, and and we have to consider uh, the risk of harm to the data subject and what tools are available in order to to reduce risk. So uh, in in conjunction with not panicking, it's also there's so much noise around uh, the information security space that uh, it, it would it would be really easy to fall victim to the idea that um, buying a, a few pieces of technology will get us where we need to be from a GDPR point of view. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. GDPR is a combination of uh, things that have to be done uh, within uh, the legal department, within cybersecurity, and then, of course, uh, you know, the IT uh, department, specifically around data subject rights, that Chapter 3 of GDPR. That's J.R. Cunningham from Optiv. Facebook faces a very strong consumer backlash over the Cambridge Analytica affair. While Cambridge Analytica appears to have used data from Facebook in unanticipated ways, there are now more reports of similar use of customer information by others, including other political campaigns and consultants, sometimes with the tacit acquiescence of Facebook itself. The current case, it's worth emphasizing, is not a data breach, but rather analysis and use of information the owners provided Facebook and the correlation of that information with the other digital contrails people leave behind them as they move across cyberspace. The U.S. Congress intends to summon Facebook executives to testify on the company's data use policies, and the Federal Trade Commission has opened an investigation. There's international investigative interest as well. Both the British and European parliaments want to hear from Facebook's leaders. Much of the scandal derives from the bragging attributed to Cambridge Analytica leaders, particularly recently suspended CEO Alexander Nix, who's been disporting himself like a body double from the Kingsman movies. Not only is the boastful chit-chat about honey traps discreditable and unsavory, but even more disturbing are what panelists at today's Billington International Cybersecurity Summit characterize as claims to be able to manipulate the thinking of particular individuals, and of course, to influence their voting. It's worth mentioning that this is persuasion, not mind control out of science fiction, and so it's perhaps best understood as a marketing scandal. Many observers call this a tipping point for the tech industry as a whole, dependent as it is on its ability to monetize personal information for marketing, A piece in the San Jose Mercury News suggests that Silicon Valley is ripe for antitrust and other strong regulatory treatment. The Mercury News calls public mistrust and resentment unprecedented, but there is a precedent, just not in the tech sector. Silicon Valley increasingly looks like the oil and steel sectors did when the trust busters turned on them at the end of the 19th century's Gilded Age. The faces of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, have been little seen. Many suggest it's time for them to lean in. People interested in crisis management will watch the company's handling of the matter closely. This isn't, remember, a technical issue or a data breach. It's a crisis deriving from company policies and practices. 
arguably from anticipated or unanticipated aspects of its business model, so public affairs would be particularly important in containing the damage. One aspect of sound incident response practice Facebook may have got right is to involve the lawyers early and often. Their general counsel is said to have been leading the crisis response meetings. Good to be lawyered up, but it's no substitute for the very public faces of the brand. In any case, we expect to see class action suits soon. More regulation, too. We're in Washington today at the third annual Billington Cybersecurity Summit. The federal government may be closed due to the early spring blizzard we're experiencing here in the Middle Atlantic, but the summit is going on as scheduled. Security experts from four continents are here making presentations. There's unsurprising unanimity so far concerning the necessity of collaboration between government and the private sector. Not only does every threat travel through privately owned infrastructure at some point, and not only are much, arguably most, critical assets in private hands, but there's also a question of capacity. There's also some clear consensus on the ambivalence of technological advance. As David Koh, Singapore's Commissioner of Cybersecurity, put it, quote, We have to get a better understanding of the risks and vulnerabilities of new technologies. We can't concentrate only on the upside of technology and disregard the downside. That's a recipe for disaster. We exploit the technology and run the risk of being exploited ourselves. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Uh, we had a story come by via Naked Security uh, about e-passports. And uh, I remember there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of attention when uh, U.S. passports started having uh, electronic chips built in to have uh, information stored on them. Um, but it turns out that people have not been able to use this uh, this feature of passports. What's going on here? Yeah, so these new electronic passports, well, not even so new anymore. They've been around for more than 10 years. But the idea was to make them uh, more difficult to forge. So the information uh, about a person, you know, their name and uh, address and age and whatever other information uh, would be stored on a uh, on a computer chip rather than, you know, just being stored in print like in the old days. And the idea would be that that information would be cryptographically protected. Uh, it would be signed. And then that information uh, would then be verified when that person came to cross the U.S. border. And the uh, problem was that even though that uh, those cryptographic techniques were implemented on the passport, the uh, software at the border crossing seems not to have been implemented properly, and it seems like they were never actually verifying the integrity of the data that they were reading. So that basically means that even though you have all this nice cryptography on the passport itself, uh, it's all for naught because uh, they, they just weren't checking it at the border. And does that make it useless? Uh, I mean, is it, is it a point where you can't extract the data from the passport because you don't have the proper software? Well, I think the issue is, uh, you know, so I don't know whether any but he was ever actually able to exploit it. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, certainly a risk. If you didn't know whether or not they were verifying or not, then, uh, you know, you would take a risk going to the border with uh, invalid information. And, uh, it, you know, it would only be after the fact that you would realize that they never actually verified anything. So I don't know to what extent this was ever actually exploited, but it certainly looks bad, right? Because we go through all the, the, the difficulty and all the expense, obviously, of changing these passports, and then to not even uh, have the appropriate software at the other end to read them properly, uh, it's kind of kind of an embarrassment, frankly. And from a, a big picture point of view, I mean, if we're talking about encryption that is 10 years old, the techniques are 10 years old, does that mean by modern standards they would be obsolete or, or ancient, or would oh, they still hold up? Uh, no, not at all. So, so the cryptographic techniques themselves uh, should be fine. Uh, there was no, no nothing wrong with the techniques themselves. It's just that you've got to uh, obviously be implementing them properly on both ends. All right, interesting stuff. Uh, you can bring a horse to water, <laughs> you but you can't make, make, can't make drink. this stuff up. I think you're gonna you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. That's right. All right, Jonathan Katz, as always. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.